Under the banner of national conservatism, a new faction on the cultural scene is pushing for its vision of a brighter future for America. This group has emerged with the aim first of reshaping conservatism and thereby influencing the direction of American politics. What are they promising? Well before the pandemic, they argued for a need to restore America's strength, unity, and freedom. Now, after the pandemic and the massive failures to deal with it at all levels of government, they're positioned to gain more influence. What is national conservatism? What do its advocates stand for? What would their success mean for our lives and freedom? These are some of the questions we're going to be exploring today on New Ideal Live. Welcome. I'm Ilan Jerno, and in a moment I'll be joined by my colleague Keith Lockich. Uh, during the presentation, we'll be taking some questions, and if you want to submit them, please join us on Zoom or the YouTube Super Chat. Keith, are you there? Hi, Ilan. Hey, Keith. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for joining. So I think it's worth starting out by saying that we're both outsiders to conservatism as an intellectual endeavor, and we're looking at it from that perspective. So maybe we should start with just a few comments about sort of our perspective, our framework, the sort of context we bring to this yeah. uh, in sort of trying to un understand what this movement's about and evaluate it. Yeah, and I think uh, if we wanna look at a new form of conservatism, this national conservatism movement, let's start by looking at conservatism itself. You know, Ayn Rand in particular, had a lot of criticisms of the conservative movement, you know, way way back in the early 1960s, even. Um, so let's talk about, you know, what what is the what is the conservative movement? What does conservatism stand for? And what were some of Ayn Rand's critiques of that? Why don't we start there? Yeah, I think the first place to the first important point to make is that it's 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 an ism, but it's not really clear what it stands for. It's not a coherent set of ideas. And if you talk to people in the conservative movement today. There's a whole spectrum of people who identify in that with that label, but the label itself is very loose, and I think uh, it encompasses people who are religious and people who are not religious, people who are about limited government, people who are about what they think of as strong government, and so it, it makes it very hard to talk about as an intellectual uh, phenomenon. And this is one of the criticisms Ayn Rand made uh, way back in the 60s. And it was true, I think, all the way through. And it, it became more pronounced over the years that she was observing this phenomenon. It was just that this is an incredibly loose term. It doesn't really help you understand what people stand for when they use this label, what they mean by it. And it, one of the things that is so if you think back to when it sort of first emerged and became a significant cultural phenomenon, it was associated with advocacy of freedom. And Ayn Rand writes about conservatism. She takes them initially to be, these are the advocates of capitalism. So in the early 60s and even before that a little bit. And in, in many people's uh, view, conservatism has associated, has strong associations with freedom and liberty and sort of economic uh, sort of free market perspective. Um, and so that's one of the things that Ayn Rand said, well, that doesn't seem to be borne out by the evidence. Like, given what sort of leaders of the conservative movement believed at the time and then since, this isn't really, there isn't a coherent advocacy of freedom. And there, in fact, she, she went further than that. She said they betray the ideal of freedom. They betray 
the idea of free of capitalism. And in fact, they're conceding the ground. They're, they're paving the road for the opposite direction. And many of them are advocates of what she characterizes the mixed economy, which is yeah. big elements of, of government control with small pockets of freedom that are dwindling. I mean, her in her view, that which she expressed at the time, is that the fundamental conflict of the age is the conflict between capitalism and statism, you know, statism, collectivism. And you know the the liberals and the you know the the apologists for communism were pushing in the direction of communism, and the people who are supposed to supposedly the defenders of capitalism um, had nothing to say in terms of what are the moral foundations of capitalism. And um, in 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 response, you know, so the communists and their apologists. Would, were claiming that communism is secular, it's atheistic, and it's scientific. This is a scientifically devised social system that's going to optimize human flourishing for everybody. So, in, and in response to the idea that communism is secular, atheistic, and scientific, you know what the what the conservatives did was basically concede that all of that is true and argue that Americanism, by contrast, you know the founding principles of America are faith, religion. Um, you know, the opposite of, of what the communists were saying. And, and I mean, from Rand's point of view, this was, this was a total capitulation and, and was worse than bad, you know, in terms, of, in terms of providing a grounding for capitalism or free markets, because it's conceding that reason and science, you know, is on the side of statism, collectivism, and tyranny. Um, I was going to say, I think one of the aspects of her critique of conservatism, and I think this sets us up for the conversation about the contemporary development, is that it was lacking a philosophic foundation or philosophic framework. And that's the sense in which I, I said it's ism, but it isn't really because there's no sort of coherent substance to it. And her analysis, which I think is true at the time, and it's definitely been borne out, is that the conservative, the better conservatives were paralyzed in their advocacy of freedom to the extent they believed in that and, and their anti-communism. They're paralyzed by a prevailing moral view, which is what she calls altruism, this ideal uh, moral idea, which people take as a given and sort of the normal view, which is the idea of self-sacrifice or altruism. And as a result, their, their defense of capitalism is flawed. It's, it's not really effective. Uh, as you said, it, it's founded on the idea of faith or tradition and, and some of them Sometimes it's put in terms of in terms of human depravity. Like people aren't really uh, good enough for uh, to, no one is good enough to be a dictator. So we might as well have freedom, uh, and and that sort of that is just a low point in terms of what she thought of as the proper defense for capitalism. Yeah, and and this this uh, moral perspective also gives the lie to the idea that there's a fundamental opposition between you know, communism and religion. Um, the, her view was that it's, it's, it's false to think of communism as a, as a secular scientific theory because what it essentially does is take Christian morality and secularize it, but take it over wholesale. And, it's, and the, all their philosophical theorizing, dialectical materialism and all the sort of thing is just a rationalization for uh, taking Christian morality and making it the basis of a statist tyrannical social system. So there's really the only difference between theocracy and, you know, a communist dictatorship 
is that one is nominally secular and the other isn't, but they're but they're just as mystical in terms of their basic philosophical premises. So, so these are the this is sort of the essence of her critique of of conservatism. So now, you know, the, she was writing some of these articles in 1960s. So here we are, 60 years later, and we've got this supposedly new phenomenon of national conservatism. What's that about? Tell us a little bit about this movement. Yeah, let's let's dive into they, that. I just want to. I just want to dive, let's dive in and I just want to acknowledge, thank you for uh, the super chat question or, or uh, just the support. We appreciate it. If you guys are watching on Facebook, please like the video, help us spread the word, get more people's attention. Uh, leave a comment if you're watching or uh, we'd love to get your feedback and help us uh, reach more of an audience. So let's talk about national conservatism. I think it's worth, I don't know how many people are it's on everyone's radar, but I think these are the sorts of developments that are important to, to pay attention to, even if they're sort of not top of the news every day, because these sorts of things grow incrementally. They often work in the background. The influence isn't always apparent, and it might take five years before you see the full fruit of or longer. But th this is how ideas spread, and, and it's important to sort of track these sorts of developments. So who's involved and what, what are they about? So this is a movement that came up sort of on my radar a couple of years ago with uh, one of the people behind it is an Israeli-American scholar. His name is Yoram Hazoni, uh, whose who's work, I have quite a lot of respect for his work, though I disagree with a lot of it. So he, he wrote a book called The Virtue of Nationalism, which I wrote about for our journal, New Ideal. He founded, I think it was uh, 2019, he founded the Edmund Burke Foundation, along with some other intellectuals, among them uh, Christopher DeMuth, who was the head of American Enterprise Institute for many, many years. He was a Reagan administration official, so fairly well-connected and prominent, and not a fringe figure, <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, along with some other people, the Burke Foundation is really the core of this movement of, for national conservatism. And its main activities have been three major conferences and a lot of publications and so on. The conferences are really uh, sort of the place to look at what these people are about. So they had one in Washington, D.C., in, in London, in U.K., and then in Rome uh, earlier this year, 2020. Now, there are a lot of people who spoke at this event, and I, and I don't think it's fair to assume that everyone who spoke agrees with everything that is sort of at the core of national conservatism. I think you have to sort of judge each person based on what they say and so on. But I think a lot of the people speaking there do agree with the core of it. And some of them you, you might recall or see, you, you might sort of recognize, and I think it's important to see that these are significant people who are sort of on the rise or getting a profile. So among them, I'll just mention a few names, Tucker Carlson, who I don't think of as an intellectual, but he's, he's sort of a spokesman for ideas. He's obviously got a big show on Fox. Uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who's really pushing to become very prominent. I think he's angling to become uh, more significant. Uh, Michael Barone, who's a columnist of many, of many years. J.D. Vance, who wrote a um, sort of a memoir called Hillbilly Elegy that got a lot of attention in the last few years. Uh, and then one other person that I thought was really striking, Michael Anton, who, who, who actually became famous through writing something with a pseudonym uh, or pen name, uh, and that was the Flight 93 election, which came out just a few weeks before, so sometime before the election in 2016. And he's affiliated with Hillsdale uh, College and Claremont Institute. Now he was in the Trump administration for a little while before he left. Um, so it's just some significant people. And then one person who, it's sort of on the borderlands between being an intellectual and, and having other interests, which is Peter Thiel, 
Uh, he's this billionaire, uh, one of the co-founders of, I think he co helped co-found uh, Facebook and he was involved in other big ventures. He's PayPal. still, yeah, PayPal, right, that's right. So, and he's an interesting person. We should have a whole podcast about him someday. Uh, so these are some of the people involved. Uh, let's talk about what sort of the, the national conservatism is about by looking at the way they break out, okay, they're coming into this with an assessment of what's going on within conservatism and therefore, you know, conservatism in their view has failed to have the full influence it needs to have in the culture. And what's wrong with conservatism if we can, and so their analysis, if we can fix conservatism according to our lights, we can reshape American politics and have a better world and so on. So what, what is it that they're arguing? Well, it's, uh, Basically, since the Cold War, since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and all the developments that followed, conservatism, in the words of Yoram Hazoni, who gave a speech at the conference, it just lost its way. They lost the contact with reality. It lost, and here's a few sort of things to really flag, it lost interest in the Bible. It lost interest in Christianity and Judaism and lost interest fundamentally in what he thinks and some of his colleagues believe are the foundations of what conservatism is about. So religion. So that's a, a key sort of pillar here. And instead, what sort of what supplanted that focus in his view, what, what kind of got injected into conservatism and that needs to be pushed out is this idea of economic liberalism or the idea, sort of the, what he characterizes as classical liberalism or uh, libertarian influences, which obviously conservatism has a lot of those, uh, sort of has had those. So all of that is a problem. We have too much focus on the what they call, quote, atomistic individual and their economic interest and their freedom. And that has to change. That, so that's basic diagnosis. So when so when you talk about the kind of swing to the right in the in the late 70s, early 80s, and to the extent that people look back and see a sort of opening up of the economy and the, the phenomenon of globalization and the global capitalism, free trade agreements, free markets, which on the premise that these are associated with the conservatives, that conservatives are, are defenders of free markets, um, capitalism, that sort of thing, you would think that somebody would look at that and say, oh, so the conservatives are making an impact and doing good things. But his diagnosis is this is the opposite. It's the problem you're saying. Yeah, it's completely wrong. That these are the the this is the poison that seeped in. And so he's looking to, for ways for ways to kind of move conservatism in a different direction, which is sort of away from the, the focus on the individual and economic freedom um, and back to, and so let me say a couple more things about the sort of the diagnosis. So, cause you put it in terms of globalization. I think that's important because it, it's had an enormous impact on the world, right? The, the fact that there's trade now you, you can order something on Amazon. It's literally being shipped to you from the factory in China and it's here within a couple of days because the, the world is so connected and it's, you order an iPhone and it's just coming off the supply, you know, off the conveyor belt in a, in a factory somewhere in China and, and it's here in your house soon after. This is part of what they're rebelling against. Um, and the way they characterize this, they, they, there's a view that which is also a development and you have to evaluate it separately. So they, under the idea of globalization, which has incredible economic value uh, and also cultural value, they put in things like the subordination of national governments to international organizations. And the one in particular that they really dislike is the e uh, European Union, which has a lot of problems. And I'm, 
I'm by no means of a qual unqualified fan of the EU, but to them, this is a sense in which the nation is being eroded. So we're losing the sense of our sort of national independence and sovereignty. And so this is a big part of what they, they flag. And then the, one other element which we can touch on, we'll see if we can come back to it, is you know, on foreign policy, all these disastrous wars. Like if you think about America and the Middle East in the last 20 years, we've had Iraq, Afghanistan. These are just, I think, legitimately, they're, they're senseless in the sense that nothing has really come of them and a lot of cost. So they're throwing a whole bunch of things, some of which I think are legitimate criticisms of, well, yeah, I'm a huge critic of American foreign policy in the last 20 years, and things that are being bundled together under globalization, like this idea of international organizations. And all this is bad, right? So, so this is a diagnosis. We're going in the wrong direction. What we need to do is you know, pump the brakes and then go towards tradition, religion, and nation. But let, let, before we get to that, I just want to say, you know, I'm flagging things that I think are, there's aspects here that you can understand what it is that would appeal to people. But I just want to say, I think a lot's going wrong in our society and our politics, but I don't think this diagnosis is even remotely right. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask you. So they, so they're looking at, they're looking at a, a range of phenomena, some of which you and I would agree are, are problems, and some of which we think maybe are not so problematic, but they're looking at all these things and they have a particular diagnosis of what they think is going wrong from their point of view and what the solution is. So what are they, so wh wh what's the problem? Why, wh where are we going wrong according to these thinkers? Yeah, so it's, you know, too much emphasis on the atomistic individual, the idea that satisfying your own interests is paramount, this emphasis on sort of economic betterment and the idea of sort of connecting societies and nations through economic trade and, and free trade in particular, they're really <laughs> horrified by the idea of free trade. Uh, so these are some of the things they're worried about. And, and they're, they're also concerned about immigration. They, they roll that in as a problem. Um, now, I, I don't wanna unpack each and every one of these and we can talk about them in the question period, but, but to the extent you think there's a problem here, it's important to really think about what are the causes for behind it, and not just assume that you know <laughs> that you know what the, what those are because you have a pre-existing view of what the solution is. Because I think if if we had a conversation with one of these intellectuals, the solution is always going to be the same. The solution is going to be we want to go back to bringing more religion into society. We want more focus on the nation, and I don't think there's a sort of a deep attempt to unpack the problems and really think about it. Because if you did, you would have to you would have to get to some philosophic issues about, is it really true that our society is, the main problem with our society is people are too individualistic. And I think the, exactly the opposite is true. I mean, exactly, the, the people are hurting and sorting themselves into, into tribes of all kinds of uh, complexions. And the idea that we have too much freedom economically is absurd. I mean, if anything, the last 20, 30 years, we've seen that greater and greater controls uh, so there's a way in which some of these, th their analysis is just not credible. Um, and I think there's a real push for, well, what we're really interested in are the solutions. So we, we've, we've pointed towards some things that we don't like, but, and, and the answer is, let's talk about the solutions. So what are those solutions? Uh, so let's talk about some of the, the things that come up. If you listen to the talks at these conferences that they held, and, and if you read some of the books that are associated with these uh, intellectuals, which I've been doing for the last few weeks uh, in researching this issue, 
there's a really strong theme that leaps out at you and which is you know i've said their diagnosis were too focused on the quote atomistic individual that's there's too much of that and they, interestingly they think that that is coming from what they call the liberal side of the political scene which i don't i don't think that's really credible that, that if anything that side of the political scene is pushing people to be identified not as individuals but as members of groups and multi, sort of intersecting groups i mean i think their their conception of individualism is not you know one that's grounded in in per, each individual is is using reason to achieve the best life they can for themselves in harmony with other people. They I think they have a from what I'm gleaning from the reading that I've done and the conversations that we've had is that they they associate individualism with a kind of subjectivism and a whim worship. And when they look at you know the the sort of Hollywood elites and the kind of lifestyle they lead and the, and they see sort of a certain decadence in American culture and. Uh, that, and that sort of thing, uh, that's what they're responding to. And they're viewing individualism in a, in a they have this a sort of mistaken conception of what individualism even means such that they associate it with liberalism. Yeah, so I, as, as I was reading a lot of their material and listening to them, what, what really struck me is that it, it's a kind of, it, it's not an individualism I recognize. Um, sort of informed by Ayn Rand's perspective, which I think is a right perspective, and, and even, even a kind of enlightenment perspective on individualism, which is very focused on, on reason and facts. It's not at all that. It's, it's, it, I don't know if it's meant as a straw man, but it's a caricature of what individualism really is, sort of understood philosophically. So in, in contrast to that, what they're pushing for is um, this a focus on some collective, some group, and these are. This might sound familiar if you're, if, you, if you've delved into conservative thought, if you're associated with people, which is, um, you know, we, we, you know, if you listen to them, what they'll say is, yeah, we're all we like freedom. We're not against freedom, but we never. And here's a direct quote from one of their intellectuals. His name is David Brogue. He he says, we just never saw our liberty as the singular objective of, of our sort of particular way of thinking. So yeah, individuals are all nice and well, but that's not the primary focus. Let's move away from that. And what do we need to focus on? And here, these are themes you that are, I mean, they're they're so familiar that they might sound trite. It's family, neighborhood, community, uh, you know, civic organizations, which are those are not bad things. But if you treat them in the way in which these intellectuals are treating them. They become something that is above the individual, not something that you as an individual see value in. So, you know, when you listen to them, what they say is we don't want to be left alone as an individual. We don't want to, we want to be connected to one another, we want to be connected to our ancestors and our kin. And now you get, you get this sense of there's a sort of, doesn't matter who you are, what matters about you is your connections to the past, to other people, unchosen connections, things you're born into. Well, you happen to be in this town. That's your community. That's what you need to accept. Yeah. And it's so I, I, they, there's a false alternative that's being set up here with this concept of when they when they talk about atomistic individualism versus these connections to family and ancestry. So is your alternative is you're you're completely alone with no connection to other people whatsoever. That's what individualism means. Or when you have associations with other people, they are derived from accidental characteristics of your birth and your ancestry and your community and all these things that are accidental features about you. I mean, Ayn Rand really had a, had a strong critique of this, of the con concept of ethnicity. And this is partly what they're 
I think um, trying to activate is the idea that your 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 they they want to define a person's cultural background in terms of things that we would view as sort of ethnic characteristics, and you know these are these are all aspects of a person that are unchosen. They have nothing to do with um, you know their their reason, their thinking, their choices, and so they they place a big emphasis on the concept of culture, but they define a person's culture in terms of their ancestry and their ethnicity, and um, you know, this is something that, um, I mean, Ayn Rand was uh, completely rejected this. And, and what she wanted to point out is that if you have a rational conception of, the, of what culture is, it's, it's, the, it's the intellectual achievements, whether they're scientific, technological, artistic, you know, culinary, whatever it is, but they're, they're, they're concepts and ideas and achievements that in principle, can be embraced by any rational person anywhere in the world. There's no reason that you know uh, um, that that any person anywhere in the world can come to the point in their life where they understand Newton's scientific theories and and embrace that as and 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 you know then maybe they become inspired to want to go into physics because of that. Where, where you know the wherever they're from, the poorest village in Africa, you can you can you can um, embrace that. And make it part of your culture. Your culture isn't um, doesn't isn't necessarily associated with your racial background, your ethnicity, the village that you grew up in, your tribe. But that's what they're trying to promote: is the idea that that kind of thing is is more important than your chosen values and the culture that you embrace by your rational choices. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that gets at what they're doing. And I, and one of the striking things is. If you think about this politically, what they think is so you, there's the family, there's the neighborhood, there's the community, there's maybe your town, but the 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 collective or the group that matters the most that covers sort of subsumes all of those is in their view the nation. And that is a big part. So that's why it's in the title of their movement, national conservatism. And they we could talk a little bit about that, but I think what, what's striking here is that this is a way of orienting government to serving not well so my, my conception of what the government should be doing is it's it exists to protect individual freedom right that, that's sort of the perspective i come from but this is a different perspective it's the nation's role is to conserve families and neighborhoods and communities it, so those are the basic units politically and that, that's actually a sort of paraphrase from one of their statements so it's a real shift in focus from we're individuals and we make our choices, we form families, we have friends and communities and things like that. And the government's there to keep us, to protect our freedom and enable us to live according to our best judgment. That's one perspective, which I think is the right perspective. And it's a, it's a move away from that to something like, well, no, 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 the government should be focused on what is best for families. What is best for this community, and, and that that's going to have policy implications, right? Because, and we'll talk about this in a moment when we talk about who's a who's a representative of this approach in in power right now. And, uh, and the and, and and I think the idea that what's best for families in Midwestern America is going to be different from what's best for families in the UK, or like they really put it that the, the nationalism part of this is really stressed that that they don't they don't hold the view that there are sort of universal 
principles that apply to all human beings that the the what's what forms an optimal political system is really rooted in these kind of ancestral ethnic what they call cultural traditions but uh, we just talked about how we we don't share the the concept of culture that they're trying to promote but that but that's where the nationalism part of this comes from yeah i think that's a really important point you're raising keith because the 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 idea that there are no universal truths the idea that no universal principles that anyone anywhere should follow that every government everywhere should be judged according to these standards which i think there are universal principles uh, like those that i think goes to that that comes from a deeper uh, sort of point underlying their whole approach and this comes out in the, sort of this emphasis on faith and their uh, kind of an explicit rejection in some of their work uh, rejection of reason. And so, I mean, I, I mentioned the book uh, by Yoram Hazoni, which I uh, wrote about in New Ideal a while back. Uh, and this is this comes out in some of their other statements too. It's, he's, he's open about saying reason is a problem. Re sort of using rational judgment has led us to disasters. I mean, I, I don't think that's at all credible, but that's the view he's, he's stating. And we need to get back to faith and, and, and religion and as part of that, it's every nation, which is a composite of tribes and families in his view, is the one who's gonna make decisions and they might make different decisions and each nation is chooses what's best for it. And you know, there's a way to read that, which is, well, this, that's part of what an independent country is about. Like they make their own laws, but that's not what I think it really means for him. What it really means is nobody could ever reach universal truths that you could say to some country or some some group of people, no, no, this is the right way to form a government. This is the right way to order your your sort of the, the the principles of your laws. This is what it means to live a good life. He's rejecting that because he rejects the idea that reason is competent. He's he literally says reason is not competent to reach those kinds of truths. And what we need is just sort of uh, um, nation specific approaches. And, and this is where it becomes, well, if you live in, in this nation, they have these rules. And if you live over here, they have these. And well, what about what's the right way to form a government? That's sort of the philosophic perspective, the, the principled perspective. That's out. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, I see a connection here to what we started this uh, podcast talking about, which was Ayn Rand's perspective on what the, how the conservatives were trying to set themselves up in opposition to communism. You see this, I, I took this from your earlier article about uh, Hazoni's book. The reason he rejects the idea, uh, or part of the reason he rejects the idea of, 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 the, of the attempt to define universal political principles is because he, he thinks, he, he interprets that this is what the flaw with communism was. That the problem with the Soviet Union is that they thought they had, uh, through reason, identified universal political principles that applied to all human beings. And then somehow the natural consequence of that is that they're going to force those ideas on the rest of the world. And so this imperial expansion, the idea of, of communist ideology um, as driving you know, the forcible takeover of Europe and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're the communists definitely want, had, had the goal of taking over the world and in, imposing communism everywhere. Hazoni views that as coming from the idea that reason can define universal principles that apply to all human beings. And this is why, and this is why he's rejecting. 
that the, the, the alternative is to recognize that we are all, uh, you know, we're all just um, irrational sinners, incapable of understanding the world. We, it's, we need to have more humility, more faith in God, more of a recognition that our minds are weak and incapable of understanding the great mysteries of the universe. So it all comes together. And it's exactly this, it's exactly, you know, the same critique that, that communism has reason, science, universality on its, on its side. Um, and that's the problem. And, and the solution is recognizing that we're not rational. We're not capable of understanding things. We have to be humble, faith-based and, focused on the family and our ancestors and all that package of things. So it's really, it's taking all the worst elements that Ayn Rand identified, rejecting any pretense that this is a movement in favor of political freedom, free markets, capitalism, throwing all that aside and just bringing to the fore uh, the worst philosophical elements of the conservative movement. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, it, there's a real emphasis on the argument from tradition and but it's interesting to unpack what tradition really means so is you know this is a point Ayn Rand makes in her analysis of conservatism in the 1960s so what is tradition tradition is just some way of doing something or some belief system that has been handed down handed down and it's just it's something that become sort of a habit and tradition but why is it right why is something old why does that make it true or valid um, you know, we don't, we, we're skeptical when someone makes the argument that something is new, is good and new and valuable because it's new, right? That's not a legitimate standard. It might be, but you have to evaluate according to some standard. Why does it, why does it change if it's old? And in fact, when you think about what many of the traditions are that he's, so Hazoni and some of his colleagues, what are they pushing for? It's, it's really just some authorities in the past decided X. Who are we to judge? What do you, I mean, they said it. That's what we have to live by. And that, that's just, it's, it's humility, but it's a real slap in the face of anyone who's just trying to be first-handed and, and sort of active-minded and say, okay, we, so we have this tradition, but is it any good? Why should we follow it? Like, what's the basis for it? And that should be what everyone's asking because there are good traditions and there are bad traditions. And the question is, which one are you embracing and why? Yeah, if, you, if you'll allow me to jump in, my, my, um, one of my favorite scenes in The Fountainhead so is Howard Rourke, uh, who's an architecture student, is meeting with the dean of his school, and he's, he's rejecting the idea that what you should do in architecture is follow the architectural traditions. He says to the dean, you know, you see all those people down there in the city? I don't give a damn what any of them think about architecture. Why should I care what their grandparents thought about it? <laughs> you know, so he's just rejecting the, the, the whole idea that, that truth is a result of, you know, ideas discovered by or, or put forward by other people a long time ago, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to say, I mean, the, I made this point at the beginning, and I think it's worth just reiterating it that, you know, we're criticizing conservatism and, 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 a, and a particular faction within conservatism now, which is national conservatism. We're, we're talking about the intellectual leaders of a new push right, and a movement to, to steer this whole intellectual enterprise in a certain direction. That's different from talking about people who view themselves as conservatives and use the label and apply it to them because they, they may be way better than these intellectuals. And I think often that is the case. I met lots of people who think of themselves as libertarians or, or conservatives, and they're way, way more honest 
they're actually well-meaning and they're they're really trying to sort these things out. So it's not a criticism of everyone who follows this movement. It's a criticism of the movement understood by its core sort of advocates and core ideas. Uh, and I think that's important to, to distinguish. I just want to make one other point that occurs to me that, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the national side of this, except to say that for them, this is sort of the, the uber collective, the, the sort of the, the unit that we should be thinking about. Um, I, I write about this in my piece regarding Hazoni's book on nationalism. Uh, and it, it comes up in a lot of the speeches you hear, and it comes up in some other books that are associated with this movement. They have a, an uphill struggle to convince people that nationalism is a good thing. And so it, it, rightly, because it has so many negative associations, it's, it's murderous history. Um, and, they, and I think it's really interesting that they all of them try to sanitize this term and I don't think they succeed. And I think it's it's important to just flag that because it's a real problem because you you some of them fudge it and say, well, look, there's there's good nationalism and there's bad nationalism. And yeah, it can go the wrong way and it can you could take it too far, but that's not what we're advocating. And that should worry you because <laughs> if you accept a certain idea on principle, taking it to its conclusion, that's often what happens, right? The, the logic of it leads you that way. But, but let's bracket that for the time being. Maybe there'll be questions on that. I just want to say one, want to get to a point about what would it look like in practice to have this approach in politics, in government? And, you know, they'll, if you listen to some of the advocates of this view, they'll tell you what they think it looks like. And, and I think, let's just sketch out what that is, because I think it's telling. So, one element of it is if the focus is communities and the nation, so it implies that government should be really fostering virtue because that's really important. You need to have good a good society. And that means government has to have certain powers that allow it to foster virtue, whatever that looks like. And that's a little bit scary, um, just even at that abstract level. But then some of the speakers at one of the conferences have come out uh, I think Tucker Carlson really leaps out here. So his one of his, he was a keynote speaker at one of the conferences for national conservatism, and, and his big concern is that big companies, particularly big tech, is ruining society basically, and we need to rein them in. Now, there's a lot to argue about and a lot to unpack here, uh, and there might be legitimate criticisms to make of some of the practices of some of these companies. But I think the the, the headline point is. This is not at all the kind of perspective you would have if you care about freedom. You would really need to unpack why are they behaving this way? Is this really a problem? What is going on here? But that's not at all what's going on in this kind of attack that you get. And it's, well, we need government to step in and break up big tech. That, that's sort of the direction this is taking us in. So th there's a, a very different role for government uh, implied in this view if you think the basic unit is the nation and protecting families and sort of the, the community, uh, not emphasizing freedom, which is sort of what we're seeing as a pattern. And I just want to, like one really telling anecdote that kind of, to, for me, clinches this is at the most recent of the conferences they held, they had a guest speaker who made headlines. This was one reason the event was in the news. And so this was the conference they held in Rome uh, in early, in 2020, before the pandemic, just before, so while people are still having events. And the guest of honor was the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Now, I don't know how many people really follow Hungarian politics or European politics, but they may not know one who he is or what, what's, 
significant about him. But the the really striking thing about Viktor Orban is that I mean he he's I, he's identified himself at the conference as a national conservative. National conservative. He was uh, the the interview was very friendly and presented him as someone to model uh, a country after. The, the alarming thing is when you read a little bit into Hungary's politics and what's going on, there's a lot to worry about here, which is, I think he's really pushing Hungary to away from the rule of law toward what is in effect an authoritarian direction. So one of the things he did most recently is um, he didn't completely stifle free speech, but 400 media outlets were rolled into one conglomerate. They, they, they passed a law to make this possible. And there is there are still some private media outlets, but the, the basic outcome is that about 85 to 90 percent of all media in Hungary are owned by this one holding company or one conglomerate. And the way the government operates, it, it buys advertising for its, which is a little bit strange, but they buy advertising in newspapers and TV and so on, and that drives revenue towards these companies. And in effect, most of the media is now kind of aligned with the ruling party. So you have a kind of government mouthpiece pushing its views. And a lot of the private newspapers have picked up on this because you're going to lose advertising revenue if you're not aligning with. So you get this really worrisome trend where, and this is not the only thing that Orban has done. The other thing he's done that really should, it sort of integrates with the idea of emphasis on the family and, and sort of tradition is he's, he promised uh, he proposed a law that would any woman in Hungary that gave birth to I think three or more children would would get a lifetime exemption from income tax, and any couple that had a child would get like a special rebate. So it's a real push. Like this is the government. Like hear the echoes of what we've heard so far. Like this is the government trying to foster the idea of family with financial incentives and rewards for people who have a lot of children. I mean, it doesn't sound like there's much distancing from what nationalism has always meant, because this is exactly, these are very similar policies in Nazi Germany. You know, we want to promote the German people and encourage women to bear children for the German race. I mean, it sounds, you know, for the, and, 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 and with, with the same rationale, not just that it's coincidentally happens to be the same policies, but it's the same ideology that's being pushed and the same rationale for it. It's pretty disturbing. And I think the other thing that is important to get is, so you could imagine having this person at the con, I can't imagine having him at a conference that we would run, but you can imagine inviting him for a conference and saying, why are you doing all this stuff? Like defend yourself. And, you know, people are criticizing you for eroding the rule of law for, you know, crushing free speech. What do you say to that? Now, those are some, I mean, you might ask, that's what a journalist might ask him, but at the conference he was presented as, He's a model. There was no real criticism of what he's doing. He alluded to it in one of his comments, but it was softball question after softball question. And you have to, I think the, the implication that comes from this, it, the whole setting and the venue and, and, and the way the interview unrolls is as a real comfort with authoritarianism. And if this is the model, what does it mean for what they want in other countries, particularly in the US? I, I think that is a really telling uh, uh data point or, or sort of uh, indication of what they're trying to to foster um yeah i mean if you if you hold the idea if you hold the view that faith is more important than reason and that following religious authority is is paramount i mean it's natural that that cascades its way into the political system that we're not 
we're not capable of, of organizing our lives for ourselves, being rational, thinking, planning, achieving our own happiness. We need the guidance of you know, paternalistic authority figures to tell us what to do and how to organize our society and how to organize our families and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's a logical outcome, but it's, I agree that it's very disturbing. So I, I just wanna, before we, let's, we should take some questions. I see there's a lot sort of comments and questions coming in. Uh, I wanna say one, if you're watching us, like it on Facebook, help us spread the word. Same on YouTube, leave a comment or like it. Uh, it really helps us uh, gain visibility which we appreciate. Um, one point I just want to, before we wrap up and get to questions is, you know, I, we started with the sort of the context that conservatism used to be associated with many people's, it still is in many people's minds with freedom. And there were elements of better sort of more individualistic elements in conservatism way in the past, which I think are fading. Uh, but the, the sharpest contrast, which I think is, has to be part of the context for thinking about this movement, national conservatism, is, you know, the claim is that they're going to put America on a better foundation. They're going to make us free. They're going to help make us united. They're going to make us strong. I think every single one of those is, is not true. Is not That's not the outcome we're heading for. And the reason for that is that what I think is distinctive about America is not that it was built on tradition or religion or collectivism or tribalism. It's, it was built on every single one of the opposites of those. So it was a product of a period, an intellectual period, the age of enlightenment. That's the distinctive aspect of America where the leading thinkers were, were the better thinkers were saying, well, no, that what matters is the individual. There's real reverence for their life, the, the individual's life. And, and because the individual's mind is competent to deal with the world, that reason is a powerful instrument. We've seen what it can do in science. Now, what could it do in other realms of life, right? That's sort of the, the orientation of the Enlightenment. And the more you read about the Enlightenment thinkers, the more you realize how brave they were in breaking with tradition, in breaking and mocking religion, and one of the th one of the phrases I I'm, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, um, in, in some of the French philosophes who are sort of the core of the French Enlightenment, you know, one of their views was that we have to crush the infamy, which is we have to crush these religious fanatics. We can't have a world where religion is dominant, and this is where you start seeing the real separation of religious power from political power. This is sort of the, the beginning of that intellectual de development in a significant way and that, so that becomes solidified in the American system. Uh, so it, the bottom line is the American system is built on those kinds of foundations, individualism, the reverence for the mind, and the idea that the individual should not be subservient to any authority, any group, whether it's a religious group, whether it's a traditional group, whether it's the king, particularly not the king, and that that is what is what's made America so special and exceptional, I think, in the, in the years since then. And point for point, this movement of national conservatism is not about the individual, it's about the collective. It's not about reason, it's about faith. It's not about um, having sort of reverence for the individual, it's about submission to some group or tribe or, or the nation in this case. And I think that this is really a recipe for undermining America and any country that follows this path to the extent that it has existing freedom, I think this is really troubling as a development. Yeah. 
you know, just to piggyback on what you were saying and put in a plug for our upcoming conference, if people are interested, you, you talked about the enlightenment and how enlightenment principles laid the foundations for the birth of America. In, in a couple of weeks, we have a conference, Ayn Rand Con, um, and the theme is, is the, uh, uh, Ayn Rand's ideas in relation to the ideas of the Enlightenment. And um, so I don't know if this was going to be one of, the, one of the URLs that you have at the end, but um, if not, if you go to aynrandcon.org, you can get all the information about the conference and you can learn more about Ayn Rand's perspective on the Enlightenment and, and the founding of America and all that sort of thing. So. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So we'll have people who are scholars and, and really well informed about the Enlightenment connect and sort of juxtapose or relate Ayn Rand and the revival of Enlightenment thinking, which I think is really helpful. And the opening lecture is free and it's going to be live streamed. So you can catch it on YouTube, Facebook, wherever you wherever you want to watch. But I, why don't we draw a line here and turn to questions, Elon? So yeah, that sounds great. Uh, we just have a few, we have a few minutes left here. So um, Someone in the Zoom Q&A is asking, could we speak to the lumping of atheists and secularists with leftism? Um, so we talked about that a little bit. I think this is something that the communists and socialists were trying to put forward was the idea that, um, that, that collectivism, socialism, communism um, are a rejection of religion you know, uh, in a certain sense, and, and that, it, that they're scientific and secular. Um, I think in the origins of the movement, it was something they were trying to promote and to push the idea that they were the, they were the wave of the future, the vanguard of, you know, of the future. So it's, I don't think it's a lumping, it's, it's, this, was a, this was an idea that they were actively trying to push, put forward. Um, but yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say there's another so another perspective on this is just that I think there are people just as a sociological or anthropological fact like in terms of just how people behave and what sort of their orientation. I think it's true that a lot of people who are secular or atheists are drawn to being on the left today culturally, whatever the left means. Like if you think about progressive or pro-science. And I think part of, I don't think it's a full answer, but I think part of the reason is that that's the side politically or intellectually that has been beating a drum about we're for science. We're not about creationism, we're about evolution. If you want to talk about that debate or that fight, that's not a debate, but that fight that happened, you know, that keeps happening in the schools. If you want to talk about, um, and, and the, the debate around global warming, right? So it's the left that says we're on the side of science. Now, I think we should talk about this another time, but it, that's yeah. not really the way to think about it. But it's as opposed to, oh, this is this is a joke, right? And I don't think that's a scientific or a hoax, right? And I don't think that's either a legitimate way. But so there's a ways in which the sort of reasons why people who are secular and, and sort of interested in science and facts are, are drawn to that because what, what do they get from sort of the traditional conservative side of the spectrum, you get people like Bill O'Reilly, who this is the famous meme of him. He did an interview with someone. This is just lodged in my memory. I saw a talk by our, our colleague, Ankar Gatti. He used this example. It's just incredible. So Bill O'Reilly, who you guys probably remember, he was on Fox for many years. He had somebody on the show and he made the case that, you know, we don't know why the tide comes in and it comes out. Obviously God made that happen. And I mean, it's, 
it's elementary school or high school level science. So we know we do actually do know why the tide goes in and tide goes out. But we that's the that kind of four hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, we figured out years. But that, but it's well, that's that's just a joke, right? You you can't honestly. And this whole idea that everything is wrapped up in really, like you can see why people would be turned off by that if they're really into the sciences, into engineering, and so there's sort of anthropological reasons why. And I think the, this is part of Ayn Rand's point about. One of the arguments she makes about conservatism, this is back in the 60s, and I think she she kind of, it, it, there's echoes of this in her criticisms in 1981 uh, talk that she gave about this, which is the kind of issues that conservatism was, was elevating are the kind of things that would turn people off. If you have ambition, who cares about tradition? Like the founders broke with tradition and, and innovators in science and technology, they're breaking with the known, right? They're breaking new ground. So there's ways in which it would appeal, it would not appeal to people who are interested in science and facts and being secular and this worldly. Uh, so there's a whole sort of cluster of issues that account for some of why, it's not the whole answer, but it's some of why that seems, sort of there's more of that. That's why people gravitate towards sort of the, the left side of the intellectual world, if you think of it that way. Yeah. So I think we have a question here that I think we could, um, answer fairly quickly because I don't. So the question is, do we see a distinction between the concepts of freedom and liberty? If so, how do they differ? Uh, I view them as synonyms. I don't really see any fundamental distinction between them. Do you have any? No, I mean, different concepts. You know, there might be sort of historical issues. I'm, I'm not something I have a lot to say on, but um, you know, if someone's interested in this, there's uh, definitely people we could bring on and talk to about this. I, I don't, I don't actually think of them that does different. I use them interchangeably in, in most contexts. So, yeah. Now the next one though, I think there's, there's a lot to say, which is what is, what about the distinction between patriotism versus nationalism? Um, yeah. Now I, I think these are, these are so hot for a lot of people. These just get blurred together. And so when you talk about, well, we, you, we have to be concerned with our national interest or we have to be concerned with the nation and there's legitimate ways in which you should care about your nation. I think I do and I, I, and I think it, it's right to do that. And, and those are ways in which what you think of your nation as, this is the place I live. These are the laws I want to see upheld. These are the policies I think should be in place. And I want to protect the nation. I, want, I don't want America destroyed by outside invaders or something like that. And that is in, in patriotism as well can be this legitimate patriotism. And then there's this sort of my country right or wrong. I think legitimate patriotism and legitimate national interest or national concern, or even if you want to put it nationalism, which is not really the right term for it, is a, a, con a conscious identification of the, the values you see in the country that you live in, that you think deserve your support, that merit, objectively merit being preserved and protected and, and upheld and, and advocated for. And I think those are important to, to be contrasted with what in fact is nationalism as an ism, which is so the elevation of the nation above individuals as it, so it's basically a collectivist way of thinking. It's so the individual doesn't matter. It matters, he or she matters only to the extent that he serves the group, which is the nation in this case. And I mentioned the idea, which means the nation owns your life, the collective owns your life, it can dispose of you have it once, uh, and uh, your life is just in the hands of whoever is in power. Now, I mentioned earlier, and this is important, that 
the people advocating nationalism today are struggling to sort of sanitize it, to clean it of all the blood that has stained it over history. And I think that is a losing battle because nationalism, because it is a collectivist approach, it treats individuals as just you know material for the group. And if that means sacrificing you in a senseless war and drafting you into fighting for something, it'll be done. And if it means you don't get to have the job you want because you know the authorities decide who gets to have which job, which happens, that's what happens. So your, your future, your life is in the hands of the group, which is once you pass that principle, once you establish that, there's no freedom possible in the long term. I think the, 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 the key thing here is that um, fundamentally underlying nationalism of various kinds is the denial of you as an individual having a rational mind that's competent to live. No, we have to, we have to make the decision because you can't, this is sort of essential to collectivism. And when you get reason out of the picture, how are you going to communicate with people? How are you going to solve disagreements, right? If you can't persuade people, you have to force them into doing things. And that's sort of the way you kind of get this momentum for the nation tells you what to do and it decides and it disposes and it's you for you to do and die. Uh, so I think there's it's a lot to say about nationalism in general, and I, but I want to just contrast that with a legitimate concern and valuing of your country where you where you live for reasons that are well founded, that are rational, as opposed to well, I was born here, so this is what I care. This is what I care about. As a, and you might be born somewhere terrible, and there's no reason to support that. Can you should go and leave? Leave, you know, find somewhere better to live. Yeah, I mean, on the connection between faith and force. You know, this was a, the, Ayn Rand gave a talk in the 60s called Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. And she argues that, that because if, if faith is paramount, then you don't have rational discussion as a means of persuasion. You know, the only option is to force people to do what you think is right. And so faith and force are corollaries and they go together in the same way as reason and freedom go together. Um, and so given the principles that Hazoni and these other people under the banner of national conservatism are advancing, their, their claim that it's gonna be peaceful and wonderful and the foundation of Americanism and all this sort of thing, it just, it logically is impossible. It just doesn't make sense that the, the principles that they're advocating will lead to the kind of horrible authoritarian nationalism that I think we all have a right to fear, so. So I, I think we're at time. I just want to share. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the article, Faith and Force, which I, I, I wish I had included. I just want to share a slide with some uh, recommendations. I'll, I'll just read them off okay. here. Say goodbye. Thanks, Keith. So uh, some recommendations are Ayn Rand has uh, lots of statements on conservatism, and you can find them by going to the Ayn Rand lexicon online. She also has uh, some uh, commentary on the idea of collectivism, which we brought up in the conversation today. And the article that we we referred to at the very beginning by Ayn Rand, where she analyzes conservatism back in 1962, is called Conservatism an Obituary, uh, which you can find in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, in paperback and Kindle. But also you can find that particular essay on our website, and the, the link is on the screen for you. I will mention as well that uh, sort of uh, mentioned Keith's suggestion that if you're interested, join us uh, in a couple of weeks at Ayn RandCon online, which will be uh, November 6th 
we'll be talking about the Ayn Rand and the revival of the Enlightenment, which I think connects very well to the topics we've been talking about today. You can write to us. The address is newideal at aynrand.org. We look forward to hearing from you. And uh, thanks for joining us. We'll be back here next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.